This morning, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture in the book of John, which we read just a few moments ago, so you may want to keep your Bible open to that passage. It's a brief passage. And I'm going to refer to many verses of Scripture in the course of the message. This is not going to be a typical exposition of a passage. There will be some teaching directly from the passage in John, but I'll also supplement it very heavily from other places in the Bible. This coming Tuesday, of course, is the day which we call Halloween, but it's also another day. It's the day which we remember Martin Luther. On October the 31st, 1517, it'll be 500 years this coming Friday when he took a list of 95 statements called the 95 Theses and nailed them to the cathedral church door in the city of Wittenberg, Germany. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what that was about. It was not designed in his own mind to form a breakaway church. That was not in his mind. In fact, the door of any church was a place anyone who wanted to challenge people within the church to a debate about matters of religion or theology could do that. Luther did. He had some serious concerns about the church. He was a monk. He was an ordained priest. He was a man who had earned his doctorate in theology at the University of Wittenberg. He was a man who was a professor. He was preparing young men for the priesthood as he was serving in that capacity. I need a drink of water if somebody can get me some. Okay, I'm about to have a little coughing episode. I can tell it right now. So, sorry about that. Hopefully I'm wrong. won't be the first time today I've been wrong. (laughs) So, when Luther nailed those 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg 500 years ago come Tuesday... Little did he know that he was going to light the fuse for what has come to be known as the Reformation. He was not the only one who had been praying for and working toward the Reformation of the church. In fact, he stood on the shoulders of many before him, many of whose names we will never know in this life. Thank you, Mike. We will never know in this life In the next life, we will know those people. But two in particular that we're going to look at today who were very instrumental in the thinking of Martin Luther. And there's a lesson in here for us. Whenever God leads someone to do something to really move the church back to where it belongs, and that would be under the authority of the Scriptures. Thank you, Mike. This is becoming a trend here. Mike and Mike and Mike. That's great. But nevertheless, when the Spirit of God begins to work in an individual's life to use that person to help the church come back to where it got started, to the Apostles' teaching, which is embodied in what we call the New Testament, 
but not simply the apostles' teaching. Because within the context of what we now know as our New Testament, which was the repository and is the repository of the apostles' teaching, those books that we have in the New Testament are indeed books which were written either by apostles or by people who were associates of the inner circle of apostles. Within the context of the apostles' teaching, there are statements like this. In 2 Timothy 3:16, the Bible says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The All Scripture, I hope you know, is referring to what we call the Old Testament. It's not what we call the New Testament. The New Testament was not even fully formed when this was written, and it was certainly not in circulation. So all Scripture, in that same context, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy that he, that is, Timothy, heard the Gospel through the Scripture from his infancy, from his childhood. And it was able to make him wise for salvation. Also in the book of Romans, chapter 15, another place in the Apostles' teaching, we hear these words, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, excuse me, and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So, the Scriptures, Old Testament, give us instruction, give us encouragement, and give us hope. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, is the basis for what we believe and how we live. That is what God has given us. And that is what Luther was really seeking to do. He wanted not to lead a revolution. It turned into that. He didn't set out to do that. Rather, he set out to bring the church back to its evangelical roots. And the word evangelical is misunderstood greatly among believers in the United States and perhaps all over the world. When you hear the word evangelical, probably most of you think of the word evangelism. That is a sister word. But the word evangelical comes from our English word evangel, and those words come from the same Greek word in the New Testament. And the word simply means the good news, and by implication, the good news which is contained in the Word of God. Bringing us back, we always find ourselves on a personal level being brought back. If you're a man or woman who seeks after God, you want to read your Bible. And your reading of the Scripture has a way of teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training you in righteousness. Because we all have the tendency to get off the pathway that the Lord has established for us. So keep that in mind. Let's think about... The first man I mentioned who had great influence on Martin Luther, John Wycliffe. Unlike Luther, who was a German, Wycliffe was a British person. He was an Englishman. He lived in the 14th century. He lived about 150 years before Martin Luther. He was a very bright young man. He went to Oxford He studied there. He won honors there. He was assigned a place on the faculty even before he finished his bachelor's degree. 
He was well thought of there. He was in good stead with royalty. All the nobles in the land of England had great respect for this man, John Wycliffe. As he progressed through his life, he became more and more interested in the Bible. He taught theology, as I mentioned. He would teach Scripture. And his life began to be shaped by what he read in the Word of God. He decided in 1378 to write a book which summarized his viewpoint on what we call the Bible. He entitled it simply, The Truth of Holy Scripture. He said the Bible is the final authority above the church, its traditions, and even the Pope if he's in error. It contains all that is needed for salvation. And then he makes this remarkable statement. He said, all people should read the Bible for themselves. That was shocking. This was in 1378, mind you. 750 years ago. That's a long time, isn't it? Maybe 650, something like that. My math's not too good sometimes. But a long time ago. And so you know what that led him to do? It led him to propose that there would be a Bible translated, not in Latin from Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament language and the New Testament language, but into English, Old English it would be. And so, under his leadership, that occurred. And the Bible was placed into the hands of the people. He suffered some persecution, as you might add and expect, because of the position which he took. But... He died an outcast by many, but in relatively peace, peaceful situation. Then there was something else that needed to be said about this man. He was so popular on the continent of Europe that people who were in the priesthood would come across to study under him. They were intrigued with the authority with which he taught and with the power which accompanied his teaching and his person. Many came from what was then known as Bohemia. Bohemia had as its capital Prague. We know Prague is the capital of Czechoslovakia today. And they came over and they studied under him. They sought a degree under him in their study at Oxford. They were influenced by Wycliffe and they went back to their homeland. One of those who was influenced in his thinking about the truth of Holy Scripture, was a man named Jerome. All we know is that his name was Jerome. He was known as Jerome of Prague. And it was he who introduced the teaching of John Wycliffe to one of his students. His name was John Huss. Huss, much like Wycliffe, even though he never met John Wycliffe, was a man who was drawn to the Scriptures. And he was drawn to the people because he knew the power of God's Word to transform lives. And he wanted to get the Word of God into the language of the people who were on the outside, the vast majority on the outside, listening in when they would go to Mass because it was always in Latin. His first assignment after he had finished his studies at the University of Prague and was ordained into the priesthood was by his own choice, not a 
fancy church. It didn't even bear the name church. It was called the Bethlehem Chapel. It was populated by working class people. But 3,000 people came every Sunday to hear this man preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of God was powerful to save many of those people. And they began to grow in their hunger for the Word of God. This man was soon excommunicated by the bishop of Prague and finally excommunicated by the Pope. What was his crime? Well, he put the Word of God into the common language of the people. Imagine that. His king, I'm talking about John Huss's king, his name was King Wenzel, was a friend of Huss's. He believed what Huss was saying. And he came to me and said, Master Huss, you need to leave Prague because if you don't, your life is in danger. He didn't force him to leave. He just told him it would be wise for you to leave. And Huss took the advice of his king. He left. For one year, he was in hiding, in exile, until he received a message from the person who represented the church and was told in this message that there was going to be a council of leaders in the church at a place called Constance in what is now East Germany. And he would be given safe passage and he would be protected once he got there. He prayed about it. He went. When he arrived there, all of a sudden, the whole notion of safety just went up in a vapor. This was gone. And the explanation which was given by the person who was overseeing the Council of Constance was, it's okay to lie to a person if that person is a heretic, a false teacher. He was imprisoned. His prison cell was next to the sewage system in the big city of Prague. He soon became ill due to exposure to the raw sewage which was in that area. He was transferred to another cell, but it was nothing more than a cage. It was outside, so he was exposed to the elements. And finally, in the summer of 1415, after having spent months in that jail cell in Prague, Bohemia, he was brought to trial. The trial lasted only one month and one day. It was a trumped-up trial. Everyone knew what the outcome would be. It was simply an opportunity to expose this man, to condemn him for the crime of being a man committed to the Scriptures for final authority, and then to finally render a death sentence to him. He was sentenced to death by burning at the stake. On the 6th of July, 1415, John Huss was marched to the place of execution. He was given an opportunity to deny what he had staked his life on to that point. To deny that the Scripture is enough for people to have in order to know God and then to be drawn to Christ in repentance and receive salvation. And this is what he said as he was tied to the stake, about to be burned. He said, I will die with joy in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. Same gospel, by the way, that Martin Luther ended up preaching. Do you know what that gospel is? 
is found in the book of Ephesians in this form. For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a matter of works, lest anyone should boast. By grace through faith we are saved. That was the gospel. He died for that. Now fast forward to the early 16th century, back to Martin Luther. We've come full circle. Luther was born into a lower middle class family. His father was a copper miner. But his parents really wanted him to get a good education, perhaps to elevate him in the socioeconomic order. His father, who was very harsh upon him, he was so harsh in his treatment of him and the discipline that he exercised in Luther's life that Luther never overcame the fear he had in an unhealthy way of God as a father. He could never really envision God as father because his earthly father was so cruel to him. His father wanted him to study to be a lawyer and so he set forth on that journey. He got his bachelor's degree. He got his master's degree. He was then studying for a law degree. He was walking in the middle of a ferocious German summer storm. Lightning struck a tree right in front of him on the road which he was traveling. It quickly fell over and barely missed him. He was spared. He fell to his knees and he cried out to his patron saint, Saint Anne, help me. I'll become a monk. He made a commitment to become a monk, much to the chagrin, I might add, of his father and his mother and all his friends. And they were saying, look, Martin, you can be religious without going into the order. And please consider it. He said, no, I have made a promise and I'm going to keep the promise. That tells us something about the character of this man before he really knew the Lord. He was extremely conscientious before he came to know the Lord. And he would go to confession and stay and stay and stay. One sin brought to mind another, brought to mind another. And his confessor, who was the leader of the monastery that he was a part, his name was Stoppitz, it was his last name, it was an Augustinian monastery, finally said to him one day, Stop it, Martin. Just love God. That's all you have to do, Martin. Love God. He loves you. And then Martin responded by saying, Love God. I hate Him. He hated Him because he found it impossible to get in a right relationship to Him because he knew that God is a holy, righteous God. And he was very much in touch with his own sinfulness and unrighteousness. Well... Stoppitz held the chair of Bible lecturer in the university there in Wittenberg. And he saw the great promise in his understudy, Luther. He encouraged him to go ahead and get his doctor's degree in theology. He did that in almost record time. He was such a diligent worker and very brilliant mind. And after he had finished his study to earn his doctor's degree in theology... He was offered the position that his mentor had held for decades. He became the lecturer in Bible in that university. And it caused him to delve into the Scriptures. He'd really never given much attention to the Bible. But he began to really dig in because it was his nature to be thorough 
and not want to misrepresent anything that he taught. And so, for the next seven years, he buried himself in his study. It was in a tower in the monastery where he was. He would go and he would hide away in the study there. And he would just bury himself in the study of Scripture. He began with the Psalms. He spent almost three years studying the Psalms. Then he found himself in the book of Romans. He spent two years in the book of Romans. It was in his study of the book of Romans. Remember, he is studying the Bible in order to teach aspiring priests in the Augustinian order so they in turn could teach the Bible, understand it, and teach it. It was in the process of that that he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and there is a phrase in that verse that arrested his attention. This is the phrase. Listen carefully. It's a simple phrase. The righteousness of God. That's all it was. And the Spirit of God spoke to him. And it began to dawn on him why he had suffered so long and was so melancholy. He was so oppressed by his own sin. It's because he was trying to work his way to heaven. He was trying to become more and more righteous. And the closer he got in his acquisition of righteousness, the higher the bar went. He could never reach it. And then all of a sudden, he read this statement, the righteousness of God. A righteousness which is in God for sure. But a righteousness which God wishes to give to sinful people like Him without any other thing that person could do except to accept it. Just like a child would accept a gift from a parent. To that child. And so, as he read further into the book of Romans, he read Romans 6.23, he was going to teach that. And most of you know what that says. It says, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, His Son. He came upon what is known today and what was known by the Apostle Paul and all the apostles that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The word justified, of course, is a legal term from the Roman legal system. And it simply means that one is declared right before the law. One is declared innocent before the law of Rome. That was borrowed by the Spirit of God given to Paul to describe what happens when a person gives himself or herself to Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. It's a gift. This was overwhelming for him. And he did not make his commitment overnight. I had expected when I began to study this more carefully that it was an epiphany for sure. But there was instant commitment on his part. But he took a long time, maybe as many as three or four years, to continue to thoroughly study this because it was something that was very important. He didn't want to misinterpret it until he made that commitment. It's reflected in his nailing of the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517 on the cathedral door in Wittenberg. And then in 1519, after that great event, he was entering into debate with another priest whose name was John Eck, the debate was 
waged at a place called Leipzig, in what we now know as Germany. And in the debate, this is what Luther banked his position on. He aligned himself with John Huss, remember that name? Regarding his position set forth in his principle regarding Scripture. And Luther called it sola scriptura, only Scripture. Only Scripture as the authority for our understanding what is true about our faith, but also what is to be true about the practice of our faith. The Scripture is that which God has given us. It's His Word which He's given to us to guide us in our lives. One year later, at the Diet of Worms, he was called by church tribunal to come and to present his position. It was very intimidating. There were church leaders from as far away as the Vatican. In fact, one of the cardinals, one of the right-hand men of the Pope was there. And they sat and gave him an opportunity to explain what he believed. And there was a debate which went on for several days. Finally, he was told either recant, say no to what you have been teaching, or suffer the consequences, probably burning at the stake. He asked for a day to think it over. And you and I would have too. And as he prayed about it, he wrestled all night in prayer. He came back the next day. And he wasn't like in your face in the way in which he said this, according to eyewitnesses. But he was asked one more time, are you ready, Martin, to recant? And he said, here I stand. I can do no other. He had to stand solidly on the Word of God. And he was staking his life on it. And then the tribunal and all those present in the room where this case was being tried were stunned. He simply turned around, walked out. Frederick III, who was the ruler of the principality that Wittenberg was in and who was favorably disposed toward Luther. He was becoming like Luther in his thinking about what constitutes salvation. He whisked him away to a castle that was in his district called the Wartburg Castle. And there at Wartburg, Luther spent the better part of the next year doing something we might expect him to do. He was translating the New Testament into the common language of the German people so they could have the Word of God. Do you know it's very dangerous? Somebody's here probably today who doesn't know the Lord or may take exception with all that I'm talking about today because of your background. But beware. Don't read the Bible if you don't want to get saved. I'm serious. Don't pick it up. It's dynamite. Just like when Luther nailed those 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. He lit the fuse of the Reformation. He lit the fuse of the powder keg of the Reformation. But when he said, here I stand, I can do no other. And then he retreated to the castle that was owned by Frederick III, his protector. And there he translated the Bible 
into the common language, the German language, Old German, one would say, so that the people could have the Gospel in their own language so they could read it. Do you know the greatest thing, I think, which came out of the Reformation, some would disagree, but there are several things that the Reformation is known for. It's known for grace alone. We're saved by grace, not by works. Wonderful. That's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. We can't work our way into heaven. It's frustrating, just like with Luther. We're saved by faith. It's not by works. It's our trust in Christ. After all, what does the Bible say in Romans ten seventeen? It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ or the Word of God. And also the idea of Christ alone. Who would argue that? That is so important. We can only get to God through Jesus. Jesus says categorically, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Those things are incredibly important. But think about what we read from John earlier. John 5.39. You probably have your Bible there. Look what it says. Search, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of Me. The Bible bears witness of whom? Jesus. Now remember, when Jesus said, you search the Scripture, do you know what He was talking about? I sound like a broken record, but just in case you didn't get it earlier, He's talking about the Old Testament. You search the Old Testament, we would say, in search of eternal life. You think because in the Old Testament you'll find eternal life. And He says, in fact you will, because I am the resurrection and the life. The Bible says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Bible says, and this is the testimony, God has, listen, in 1 John 5, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. Do you have the Son of God in your life this morning? If you do, praise the Lord, you've got eternal life. Not because of anything you have done, but because of what He has done on your behalf. If you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. doesn't matter how religious you are. It has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with your humility, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, asking Jesus Christ, would you please, Lord, save me? I can't do anything to save myself. I've proven that over and over again. Lord, I'm giving my life to You. It sounds so simple. It is simple. And the sense that it's not hard to understand if the Lord opens your mind to it. But it's not something that's easy to do, is it? Because our pride stands in the way. We, by nature, are people who want to contribute to our own salvation. We want to be able to brag about what we've done for the Lord. There's no room for boasting, however. The Bible is very clear about that as well. I believe, this is my humble opinion, I'm no scholar, but the idea of sola scriptura is the overarching idea, the most important idea which came out of the Reformation because it's through Scripture that we know who Jesus is. It's through Scripture we know the plan of salvation that God has given us in the Bible. It's through Jesus that we find the grace through the Scripture, to accomplish 
what God would have us to do once we become followers of Jesus Christ. The grace is the power of God that's ours in Jesus Christ. Well, we're in great debt to these men. Martin Luther, John Huss, John Wycliffe, for their insistence upon getting the Word of God into our language. We have so much access to so much information. It's in the Word of God. We are to stand on the Word of God. It is not relative. We live in an era of relativity. The people who speak the loudest speak about the fact there is no absolute anymore. Every man does what's right in his own eyes and it's okay. There is no governing body of material. There's no God. All those things. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says in Proverbs 30, verse 5, it says, Every word of the Lord is flawless. And it is. And I know you might be saying, well, that's the testimony of the Bible itself. Certainly it would say that about itself. How do I test the Word of God? Does it work? Well, there's one way to find out whether it works. It's to try it. Most people really haven't tried the Word of God. They have refused to trust Christ according to the truth of God's Word. And the result is a negative result. The Bible is relevant. It's relevant to your salvation. You, if you are born again, or you will be born again, you will be born again and you are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 His Word is also the means to your sanctification, that big theological word which simply means you're fulfilling your intended purpose to be set apart for God's usage, to be the kind of person God uses. The Bible says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What is the tool which God uses to make us like Christ so that we can do those things which He called us to do? It's the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. We've already looked at that. Useful for those things we've seen. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? So that the person of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do I know what the good works are that God would have me to do? I know them from the Scripture. How am I empowered to do those good works? I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth of Scripture to me and I apply those truths and I obey the Lord, trusting in Him. The Scripture is relevant to our salvation, certainly our sanctification, definitely, but also to our serenity. The Bible says in Isaiah 48, 18, If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Are you lacking peace in your life? Is there an absence of serenity in your life? May I tell you why? It's something that can be traced either directly or indirectly to a lack of obedience in your life. The big disobedience with people who don't know Christ is not believing in Christ alone for eternal life. And therefore, there's this huge void 
that was created for Jesus to live in you. But you have to humbly come before Him and trust Him based upon what the Bible says. Some of you remember the name Heather Whitestone. She was the first and only, as far as I know, deaf person who won the crown of Miss America. It was 1995. After she won, she had displayed remarkable composure and peace, serenity, when she was being questioned and going through the last evening of competition. And she was asked afterwards, how did you keep such composure and calm? She says, I cannot sleep without reading God's Word every night. I have to read. And when I don't read God's Word, I get so worried. He calms me down. He does, does it? Through the Word of God. It's relevant, that is, the Bible, to our salvation, to our sanctification, to our serenity, but also to our safety. Proverbs 1.33 says, If you listen to me, you will live in safety. Listen to God, and you will have safety. Safety, particularly in your spirit and in your soul. Sometimes God allows things to come into our lives that are very distressful. I've had many of those. I've lived long enough to have those moments. But what I've discovered is that He always turns those things which would be seen on the surface of my life as bad into something for my good. I know it. I've seen it. And I'm drawn closer to Him in those moments, and you will be too. I read about a man who was a Muslim park ranger in East Africa. His name was Ahmed. He was given the responsibility to search out a rogue elephant. He and his partner went looking for this rogue elephant. The rogue elephant was reported to have killed several people in the area. He was a wild animal and obviously a huge animal, a menace to the population. This man, Ahmed, a practicing Muslim, had been given a copy of the Bible in his language. And he took it. He kept it hidden because he didn't want any of his fellow Muslims to know that he was reading the Bible. And he had read through the book of Philippians right before the day that I'm going to mention. And he read the verse which says about Jesus in Philippians 2, At His name every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As he was pondering that, as he and his fellow worker were searching for this rogue elephant, all of a sudden, what should show up? but the rogue elephant. And the rogue elephant immediately began to charge them. They began to run. Ahmed could run faster than his partner. And he got stomped to death by this elephant. Ahmed continued to run, but he was no match for the speed of this elephant. The elephant's desire to kill humans was not fully satisfied, so he continued toward him. And then all of a sudden, this verse came to his mind, at the name of Jesus, every name should bow. As that animal was gaining ground every millisecond on him, he turned around and he went to his knees and he said, Jesus says you can't destroy me. Stop in the name of Jesus. And so the story goes, the elephant stopped dead in his tracks, just looked at Ahmed as he was there just about four or five yards ahead of him, and then turned around and walked away. Needless to say, Ahmed gave his life to Christ as a result. He'd seen the Lord work. 
Now, you may not have that dramatic a story about being brought to safety by the Lord. But look, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give, notice the word, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. Is that a place of safety? The hand of Jesus. He goes on to say, No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You want safety in this life, in the life to come? Then you need to give your life to Christ. How do we know about all this? It's in the Bible, isn't it? We would not know it otherwise. Also, this Word of God that we have is relevant to our society. George Washington said, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. This was our founding father who said this. It's also relevant to our success. I think everyone wants to be successful who's here. The Bible says, Do not let this book of the law, talking about the Bible, depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, is what the Bible says. John Wanamaker was a pioneer in merchandising in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. Mr. Wanamaker implemented new principles of retail business that no one had ever tried. Until he came on the scene, if you bought something at a dry goods store, it's what they used to call them, like at Sears or like at Macy's or Dillard's or whatever, once you walked out of the store, that was it. The deal was over. But he was the one who introduced the idea, if someone didn't like what they bought, they could bring it back and get refunded. All of the critics said it will never work. He worked in Philadelphia. This man, as an 11-year-old child, was told by his Sunday school teacher about the Bible and how the Bible opens the door to success in life. Not just making money, but success in general. And so he took that to heart, this little 11-year-old boy. His father owned a brick kiln. And he goes to his dad and he says, Daddy, probably called him father or papa, he said, Papa, would you allow me to work so I can save enough money? To buy a Bible? He said, yes, son, I'll give you two cents for every 100 bricks you turn in the brickyard. It took him two and a half years to save up $2.75. That's a lot of bricks to turn. But he said when he bought that Bible that the most important purchase he ever made in his life And the most far-reaching purchase was that Bible. He said, the Bible made me what I am today. He was really saying, my submission to what God says in the Bible, the Word of God, is what made him what he was. His business transactions, if translated into current amounts of American money, amounted to $20 billion. Wow, a billionaire. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be a billionaire. I have, no interest. I'm not, I have no interest in being a billionaire, personally. I, I'm just grateful that I'm a child of God. 
and I have inherited all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus. I'm not lacking anything I need now or forever. And I'm not phased by material things like I once was before I understood what I'm sharing with you today. My place of peace is in Jesus. He says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. He gives that to us when we trust Him. I'm going to close with this illustration. It's said in Soviet Russia, a play had been written to make fun of Christianity. And it was called Christ in Tuxedo. The setting was a bar which had once been a church building. An Eastern Orthodox church building. And when the curtain rose, you could see people sitting or standing at the bar. Among them, mixed in, were a couple of nuns and a priest. And so it was making fun of the clergy, but also the whole notion of God. And the way this play was designed to begin, a man came out, you would call him a narrator, and he began to quote the Beatitudes. You know the Beatitudes? Blessed are the people who have nothing, the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and full more. And he got about halfway through that, and his voice began to crack and break. And then before the audience, he fell to his knees. And he cried out to God. He said, Lord, make me a part of your kingdom. What had happened to that man? He'd come under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God through the Scriptures. And as he had prepared to do his part, a small part, that's what happened. His life was changed by the Word of God. When Luther did what he did, when Huss did what he did, when Wycliffe did what he did, we could name a hundred more, maybe a thousand more if we studied carefully enough, of these people who were willing to die for the right to have the Word of God, to read the Bible, and help other people to have the Word of God and read it. They were used by God. God wants to do that in my life and your life. First of all, we need to be men and women who read the Bible. One application for your life as you leave here today. I'm told that the average American spends 45 minutes a day in his or her car. It's been estimated that if I listen those 45 minutes a day, for 24 days I will have heard all of the New Testament. That would mean in the course of a year, even if I skipped a few days, that I would hear the New Testament. These are the words of the Gospel the apostles' teaching, I would have heard the Scriptures 12 times in a year. Some of you have never read the New Testament. I won't ask for a show of hands. More of you haven't even read the Old Testament. But think about what could happen if you just devoted your car time to listening to the Word of God. I have an idea about how to encourage us to do that, but that's another story. So let's close in prayer. If you've never given your life to Jesus, why not? Would you be daring enough to
to go in your Bible to what we call the New Testament. Begin to read the New Testament. Ask God to speak to you personally, and He will, if you want to hear Him. He will do it. If you go in humility and ask Him to teach you, He will be your teacher. Would you just pray to the Lord, Lord, I'm willing to be taught by You. I want to have forgiveness and eternal life. So show me in Your Word, Lord, how that works. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have a good week.